Psalm 32, verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the Word of God. Good morning. You join me in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you again just grateful for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can uh, come here and hear your word taught, hear it explained, that we might understand your will, that we might understand your good and perfect will. And Father, thank You as well that You empower us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit to understand Your Word. I pray that our intention is that we listen to Your Word because we want to know You better and we want to live our lives for You. We want to be careful how we live, that we might live it according to Your Word. Father, we pray that You would guide us in Your truth and You would lead us down the everlasting path. Father, thank You that Your Holy Spirit as well not only helps us understand Your Word, but also gives us the strength to put it into practice. I pray that we would continue to beseech You in prayer, showing our utter dependence on You for the understanding of Your Word and for the practice of Your Word. Father, may You be glorified and honored as we listen to You speak to us through Your Word. May it be clear. May it be convicting. May it be powerful. May it be transforming. And strengthen us, O Lord, so that we might glorify and honor You throughout our daily lives, putting Your truths into practice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If we were to uh, conduct a survey and ask each of you to just answer this question or fill in this blank, I am most happy when? Now some of us immediately may have come up with, I am most happy when my college football team wins. And some of you may be having a good day. And some of you may not. I'm most happy when my children are doing exactly what I have told them to do. When I told them to do it. 
I'm most happy when my drink is made exactly how I ordered it and how I want it to be made. I'm most happy when really I can just end the day and say, you know, there really weren't any troubles today. And oftentimes when we focus on happiness, uh, the categories and the context that normally come up are temporal. It's about what affects me really from the outside and my environment and the day that I live. But how many of us stop and think about, I am most happy when my conscience is clear and my soul is peaceful? Scripture talks about happiness, and the Psalms talks a lot about blessed um, that can also be interpreted as happy. In Psalm 1, the psalmist says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Instead, he's one who meditates on the Word of God day and night and follows it. Psalm 33.12 says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Psalm 34.8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 94.12 says, Blessed is the man whom you chasten. O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Psalm 112.1 says, Praise the Lord! How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Proverbs says, 3.13, How blessed is the man who finds wisdom, the man who gains understanding. And James 1.12 in the New Testament says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. And in this psalm, Psalm 32, King David says that the blessed person is the one whose sins are forgiven. How often do we just think about that and meditate on that, that I am truly a blessed person because in Christ, my sins are forgiven. My soul is healthy. My soul is good. Although my outer body is decaying, wasting away, my inner man is being renewed day by day. King David is saying that is true blessing. And that is true happiness. Now one of the great privileges of the soul care ministry and really just the ministry of being a pastor is the blessed opportunity to care for people's souls. One of the things that I appreciate so much about the seminary I attended, and I was so attracted to attend there because of the slogan, we train men as if lives depend on it. Because the soul is so much more valuable than anything else. So when we talk about soul care, it means we care about your soul. And we care very much about your soul being healthy. And this is a wonderful passage that reminds us of how to have a healthy soul. In Psalm 32, King David gives us a testimony. It is a a thanksgiving and a testimony psalm. And basically what he's saying is, I'm thankful for this great truth, but I want to give you a testimony of how I did not live out this truth, but I made a mistake and didn't follow His command. But by God's grace... I was still able to get it right. And I want to share with you 
And I want to teach you. I want you to learn from my mistake. And I want you to learn from how I corrected my mistake. That's ultimately what King David is saying. In 2 Samuel, the great and heinous sin of David is recorded for us as he chose to commit adultery, as he chose to lie, and as he chose to murder. And after some time, he was stricken by his guilt before God. And we read his great confession, if you will, in Psalm 51. That would be his confession in Psalm 32. Ultimately, would be this is the testimony of what life was like between the time I committed this sin and the time of actually dealing with it and coming clean with it. It was roughly 9 to 12 months before he came clean. And he had a wonderful, biblical, compassionate, and caring counselor who came before him under the direction of God and confronted him. Nathan confronted him with this issue, caring more for his own safety, if you will, and how King David might respond to him confronting him, but caring a lot more about King David's soul. And ultimately, that is the soul care ministry of College Park Church. We are absolutely in love with your souls. And we care much more about your soul than we do ourselves. And I pray that we will continue to do so. And I pray as well, if you would, please, or I would request of you, continue to pray for us to do the same. And that your pastors and that the leaders here and the elders would care more for your souls than anything else. And in Psalm 51, we see five elements of David's eventual repentance. No need to turn there. I just wanted to go over this. And you see what he does here. In verses 1 through 3, David appeals to the Lord. He says, have mercy on me and wash me. In verse 4 and 5, he shows he understands the nature of his sin. He realizes, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He understands the heinous nature of his sin. He desires a change in his whole person. He says, create in me... A clean heart. He's deeply concerned about God's program over and above his own. He talks about your good pleasure, Lord. Do according to your good pleasure. But in verses 13 through 17, David seeks the privilege of being a lesson. He wants to be a lesson for others to follow. And he says in verse 13 of Psalm 51, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And Psalm 32 ultimately is a manifestation of that desire. It is a manifestation of such a promise as David seeks to instruct us on the joy of dealing with sin, the joy of confession, the joy of forgiveness, and dare we say the joy of repentance. You know, oftentimes the word joy and repentance normally don't hear them in the exact same sentence often. We rarely are going to see a Hallmark card that says, Oh, just want to express my joy in your repentance. I mean, that's just rarely going to be seen. It's not romantic language. Oh, that you should repent. We don't hear that. And so oftentimes joy and repentance aren't seen together. But I want us to see it together because it truly is a joy. And that's what David is saying here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So in this psalm, he wants to teach us a few things. And I've, I've organized this in seven facets for us to get the picture of this psalm. <clears throat> I'll give you real quickly what those seven facets are and then we're going to go through them one by one. In verses 1 and 2, we see bountiful blessing. In verse 3 and 4, manifold misery. 
In verse 5, complete confession. In verse 6, there is caring counsel. And in verse 7, there is sure safety. In verses 8 and 9, there is pointless pig-headedness. That'll keep you all interested. You you can't wait to get to that one, right? In verse 10 and 11, there is relentless rejoicing. Relentless rejoicing. And all of this paints for us the picture of the joy of repentance. And so let's look at verses 1 and 2. We see here bountiful blessing. And bountiful blessing is being forgiven. Now I want you to notice something about this psalm. There, throughout this psalm, it's a threefold use of a synonymous word to convey this message. You see uh, <clears throat> transgression, sin, iniquity, forgiven, covered, and the Lord ca- not counting. And you'll see this threefold use of synonymous words in every part of this psalm. The point of that is that it's, it makes it a, kind of a psalm of exclamation. It's trying to communicate, whenever he uses those threefold synonymous words, he wants to communicate the breadth of, the comprehensive nature of. In other words, there's nothing left unturned. When I use these terms, there's nothing left out of it. We're talking about the whole thing. The whole breadth, the whole comprehensive nature of this. And so when he uses these three terms, transgression, sin, and iniquity, the, the uniqueness of these words ultimately is that transgression is the idea of violating a divine command. It's the idea of crossing the line. Sin is the failure from a normal aim or purpose in life. It's the missing the mark, if you will. No matter how hard you try to be righteous, you'll always miss the mark. Iniquity is ultimately a perverse turning aside from a proper course of life. I mean, this is the idea that I just perversely do not want to do anything that is right. And so it covers the whole gamut of sin. And he wants to express the heinous nature of this sin, the awfulness of sin. But if you'll notice, it is juxtaposed to the awesomeness of God's forgiveness. So with the threefold use of sin is the threefold use of forgiveness. To meet up against this comprehensive nature of sin is this comprehensive, beautiful nature of forgiveness. And so when he talks about forgive, he's meaning to lift or to carry away. It denotes the idea of a burden, a heavy burden that has to be lifted and somebody else has to carry it. To cover, this word is commonly used in connection with sacrifices. This is where the sin as staining and defiling the divine altars was covered over by the application to them of the blood of the victim of the sin offering. It is used here to communicate God covering the penitent's sin over so as to hide it and to obliterate it. When he talks about not accounting, not imputing or thinking upon, this is the idea of a banker. It's the idea of keeping an account like a banker would keep track in his books of what a person owes. And he says he keeps no account. See, the forgiveness is total. There is this awfulness of sin that is communicated But then there is this awesomeness of the full breadth of forgiveness that is communicated as well. And we have that through Jesus Christ. Paul uses this passage to proclaim justification by faith in Romans 4. Verses 4 through 8, he says, Now to the one who works, well, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. 
But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Charles Spurgeon said, There is never a joyful man alive but a believer. Never a joyful man alive but a believer. So why is it that so many of us do not experience joy? Why is it that we depend often on finances, good relationships, behaving children, rightly running cars, and our teams winning in order to be happy? You know, oftentimes, uh, those who are, we have the NAND conference coming up starting tomorrow, and oftentimes, uh, biblical counselors have been criticized for thinking that everybody's problem is as a result of sin. Well, the truth is, not everyone's problem is as a result of sin. However, many problems are as a result of sin. And there's only one place that deals thoroughly with sin, and that's the church. Because Jesus, that's what Jesus Christ came to deal with. And it would be the most unloving thing for any of us to do to never consider that a person's problem may indeed be caused by unrepentant sin. And that's what David gets into here. In verses two or 3 and 4, David says often we experience manifold misery, if you will, because we keep silent. We keep quiet. We don't deal with sin. And this is tied to the very end there of verse 2 when he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. You know, isn't it absolutely one of the most amazing things where you can look at somebody and you just see that they just broke a glass and, and flat out you saw it happen. And you look at them and you say, hey, what happened here? I don't know. Did did you do this? No. You know, and you're looking at him, and you just your brain is doing all kinds of flip flops. Was you just sitting there going, "Whoa! I was just here. I just saw it. What is going on?" We have an incredible tendency to not want to take responsibility for the wrongs we do, right? When I was younger, I remember um, mistakenly. And it was on, it wasn't on purpose. It was an accident. But I mistakenly scooted a, a um, aluminum trash can across a redwood deck. Well, it scratched it. And the people said, hey, did you do that? And of course, I was a good boy, right? And I said, nope. <laughs> and it was obvious. In me was great deceit. And what he is saying is the blessed person is forgiven and in whom there is no deceit. In other words, they do not lie about nor seek to cover up their sin, but take full responsibility for that. So that ultimately is a generalized principle that David wants to convey. This, if you will, is the generalized principle that he knows, he's convinced of, but he did not live it. And that's what he wants to get into now. He says in verse 3, For when I kept silent... And I did seek to cover this up. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My, my strength was dried up as by the heat 
of summer. And he describes for this this manifold misery. And again, you, you see this, <clears throat> this, this whole idea of, of, of just how it felt. There was a spiritual aspect to it. There was an emotional aspect to it. There was a feelings aspect to it. There was a physical aspect to this. This created manifold misery for him when he kept silent. He talks about the fact that his vitality was drained away. My strength was dried up. One time when we were moving, I had to go clear out a shed in the backyard. When I went into this shed, I, I found a piece of cardboard that looked very much like a rat. It was a rat. That rat had so died and so dried up that it was like cardboard. The word that is used here in Hebrew, one of the beautiful things about Hebrew is it loves to communicate and paint pictures with words. And the word here literally means life juices dried up. And what he is describing, you could just, if you could, imagine that cardboard rat. That's what he's describing. That your heavy was, your hand was heavy upon me. And my strength, my vitality, my life juices were dried up. As in the feverish heat of summer. That's what he's trying to convey. That's what he wants to communicate. And we might think of God's heavy hand as maybe a bad thing, but truly it is a gift. It is a gift. Hebrews 12.6 says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Proverbs 3.11 warns us, My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. See, a believer cannot remain in his sin very long and enjoy it. If you remain in your sin very long and you continue to enjoy it, you may have a much bigger problem. Because you may not be a true son of Christ. Because part of the one of the incredible love aspects of God and manifestations of Him is that He disciplines His own. And David was saying, Your hand was heavy upon me. And I was drying up. And so he knows this by experience. He writes this psalm in order to teach us about the joy of repentance, about the joy of confession and forgiveness. This is an incredible psalm. We do well to know it. We do well to be encouraged by it. We do well to live it. The psalm basically answers the question, what do I do when I get it wrong? What do I do when I get it wrong? If I'm called to be holy as God is holy and yet I continue to sin, what do I do? Can I ever get it right? Yes. One of the phrases that I I like to just share with my children to emphasize the grace of God is I just simply teach them this. When you get it wrong, you can get it right. There is a right way to handle when we get it wrong. And that's ultimately what David is answering that is the question he's dealing with. Proverbs 28:13 says if we conceal a matter, if we conceal our sin, we will not prosper, but if we confess and forsake, we will receive mercy. And so David eventually confessed his sin and he he experienced this faithfulness of God to forgive. And we see in verse 5 complete confession. <clears throat> Again, threefold terms, synonymous terms to communicate the breadth 
and the comprehensive nature of his confession. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And because you are faithful, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. Now, oftentimes when we feel this manifold misery, we want to pray to God, right? And that's a good thing. And Father, please, if it be your will, remove this misery from my life. But have you ever stopped to think that you may actually be the answer to your own prayer? That to a certain extent, he's kind of saying, I would love to, and I have. I gave you my son. And I've given you commands that if you confess your sins, that I am faithful, I am just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I have done the very thing you are praying for. Now, please, do what I've said. Oftentimes we miss this because we don't come clean with our sin. We hide our sin. To acknowledge my sin is to make known or to declare the, the language here in Hebrew emphasizes the fact that David was doing this willfully. He was doing it with force. In other words, he wasn't being soft about it. He wasn't beating around the bush. He was going to be very clear about this. Really, the idea would be like a child who comes home with a, a project that they worked on during school. And they come home and they can't wait to bust through that door. They've got the project out of their bag. It's waving in the air. They bust through the door. They're screaming for you. Mom! Dad! Where are you? Mom! Dad! You think they're hurt. You run with great anticipation. But really all they want to do is they want to share with you this project. And that's the language and that's what it's communicating about David and saying, this is what I did with my sin. I got the point. I decided I would trust you and follow your commands and not live under this manifold misery any longer. And I acknowledged my sin to you. I ran to you. I came clean to you like a child who wants to show his parent his project. I want to show you my sin because I want forgiveness, because I want cleansing, because a clear conscience and a healthy soul is so important to me. He says, I did not hide it. It's the idea of covering with clothing. So he's basically saying, I just laid it bare. He was naked with his sin. Nothing hidden. Total openness. Totally exposed. He didn't hide anything. And then he said, I will confess. Ultimately means to admit the truth or to agree. It's the idea of ultimately submitting to and trusting in God's judgment. God, you said this was wrong. And I'm sure I could come up with all kinds of reasons why this shouldn't be wrong. And I'm sure I could engage in some kind of debate with you about why this shouldn't be wrong. But that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to confess. I'm going to submit to and trust you that your judgment is final. And that your judgment is right. And that your judgment endures forever. Now... Many of us have come in contact in some way, fashion, or form with the entire debacle over the last few weeks of, of uh, our referees in the NFL. But I honestly, I appreciate, there were some great illustrations of, of this principle given by some of the players. Some of the players just simply said, look, they are the referees. And what they say is final. 
It is what it is. God's word is final. And it is what it is. And praise God, there are no replacement gods. In Psalm 51, David said, I know my transgression, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It's that difference between a worldly sorrow, godly sorrow that's talked about in 2 Corinthians 7. The godly sorrow that produces repentance. And there's this incredible, just aggressive language that's used. He says, for behold, what earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. And then there's an aggressive nature of dealing with sin. It's swift, it's quick, it's clear, it's open, it's submissive, it's agreeing. And then we stand in amazement like in Micah 7, 8 and we say, who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of His inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. We need to understand that although you may have people in your lives where you have gone to them and said, will you please forgive me? And they've looked at you and kind of went, Do I have to? Your Father in Heaven never, ever has that kind of response to your plea for forgiveness. God our Father is characterized as one who cups His ears, leans in, and desires to hear your plea for mercy and desires to show it. He desires to show mercy. Ultimately, what this means is this. The implication of this great theology about God is that we should never hesitate to run swiftly to God with our sin. We should never hesitate to run swiftly to our God with sin. And what's very important here is we understand this isn't just merely about confession. It isn't the confession that makes Him feel better. It is, oh, I'm so glad I got that off my chest. I feel so much better now. That's not the issue. Truly what brought joy is knowing that His Father in Heaven forgives Him. And that's what brings joy. And there's a play on words here. I just want you to see this real quick. If you look in verse 1, it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then if you look in verse 5, He says, I did not cover my iniquity. And there is a play on words conveying the fact that if you cover up your sin, God won't. If you don't cover up your sin, God will. God will. Now with that, learning by experience, David wants to give caring counsel. He says in verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. Ultimately what he's saying is, don't be silent. And don't hesitate. Run to Him. Run! And you will be secure. And he leads into 
verse 7, that there is sure safety in God. There is sure safety in God. Run to him while he may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me from shouts of deliverance. The idea here is you are a hiding place. You are a place in which I can hide. I can be covered over. You preserve me from trouble. The idea of preservation there is a, really depicts the picture of, of uh, guards that would be in a tower of a, of a well-fortified city. And they're on the watch. And then the last part then he says, then you surround me with the shouts of deliverance. And it means basically what David is saying, it doesn't matter where I go, it doesn't matter what moves I make, I am completely surrounded by you. You are my protection, you are my refuge, you are my shield. And while I continue to be rightly related to you by running to you with my sin, acknowledging my sin, confessing my sin, and being forgiven by you, and being then rightly related with you, I am assured of this sure safety that you are forever and ever around me. And it doesn't matter how severe the sin is. It doesn't matter how severe I have gone astray. That, oh my God, you are there for me. It is so sad that there are so many people who think they are so far gone that they could never be forgiven by God. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how bad your sin is. It depends on how great our God is. It will always depend on that. And you need to understand that. There may be some of you here today that ultimately will not come to Christ because you believe that the sin you have committed is so heinous that God would never forgive you. Jesus Christ died on the cross once for all. He is your substitute for sin. Put your faith and trust in Him. It depends on Him. It depends on His greatness. It always comes from Him. Please don't hesitate to run to Him. Confess your sin and know that through Him there is sure safety. There is sure safety. And so with all of that great truth, the voice changes here in verse 8. And it goes to the voice of God. And God says in verse 8, "Let He says, I will instruct you, I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And again, this just illustrates again threefold words. To show the comprehensive, sufficient nature of God's counsel, of God's Word. And He will indeed show us how to live in the right way. And then He gives a warning. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. In other words, He warns us and tells us to avoid pointless pig-headedness. See, it's pointless to be pig-headed or to be stubborn. Or to think, I know better, because the truth of the matter is, we don't, and God does. And so it would be pointless. And ultimately what he's saying is this, look, I give commands on how to live life. I give you all that you need pertaining to life and godliness. And you should not choose to learn the hard way. See, ultimately we can learn by command, or we can learn by crucible. And unfortunately, sometimes when we use that phrase, well, I'm just one of those people that has to learn the hard way. And, and sometimes we even say that with a badge of honor. I just, I'm just one of those that has to learn the hard way. You know, my mama told me not to put my hand on that hot stove. Yeah, I put my hand on it. I learned. I learned. I appreciated our hunting dog. 
She only had to jump out of a moving truck once. She learned. But the point about the animal, about the horse, and about the mule is you can't sit down there and give them commands and give them a one-hour workshop on how to live life as a horse. They don't have understanding. So the only way to get them to do it is by bit and bridle. What he's saying is you have understanding. And you do not have to learn the hard way. David learned the hard way about keeping silent about his sin. And then he put into practice and he tasted and he saw how good God's will is. It's perfect and acceptable will. Beloved church, we can learn by command. We can submit to and trust the wisdom of God and live it out and not have to learn by crucible. We don't have to learn the hard way. And what that ultimately leads to is it leads to relentless rejoicing. Living God's way and not keeping silent about our sin and acknowledging it, laying it bare and confessing it leads not to manifold misery, but to relentless rejoicing. And if you look at this last part, he says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. They don't know the forgiveness of God. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And in light of that great truth, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And again, this all leads to this threefold synonymous words that communicate the comprehensive breadth of joy that is experienced by those who have their sins forgiven. John Goldengay in his commentary says, Commitment to Yahweh opens one to the commitment of Yahweh to forgive and to surround us with His steadfast joy. And as a consequence of these truths, you look at be glad, rejoice, and shout for joy. This idea of be glad is is kind of an inward and hearty joy that doesn't necessarily express itself much. But then rejoice is the idea of that inward joy is coming out just a little bit. There's some gesture of rejoicing. And then the shout for joy is it is just left, unhindered. It is out there, joyful. One way of illustrating what he's trying to do here is he's trying to present a, a, a crescendo of joy. And one way to illustrate it might be this way. Imagine that the Indianapolis Colts make it to the Super Bowl. And they are down by five points. One second left, fourth quarter, <clears throat> and they're going to receive a kickoff. So you know that the only way they're going to win is if they return that kickoff for a touchdown. That's it. He receives the ball in the end zone. And he begins to run out. He crosses the 20. And there's this inward joy. You you don't want to get too excited. But there's this kind of this inward joy. (laughs) But then he passes the 50. And you're like, yeah! Okay, there's a little more excitement. And now you see that all he has to do is pass the kicker. And he passes the kicker at the 35. And you begin, oh, good, go all the way! 
That's what he's painting. He's painting that crescendo of joy, this inexpressible joy, this incredible excitement. And if you will notice, the entire psalm is bookend by blessing and joy. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven. It was covered over. And in whom God counts no iniquity. And in whom there is no deceit. Let us not be silent about our sin. But may we without hesitation entrust our souls to the Lord to come openly before Him with our sin, knowing that in Him, through Jesus Christ, we will receive perfect forgiveness for our sins. Let us not be silent. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We appreciate this great truth. Pray that we would no longer go living as people who have not experienced your forgiveness. May we not live as if we've forgotten your magnificent mercy. May we understand that when we get it wrong, we can get it right by taking full responsibility for our sin and running to you with it. So may we be people who confess our sins wholeheartedly without justification or excuse. May we entrust our soul to you being fully convinced that you will show us mercy and that you delight in showing us mercy. May we submit to you and receive your teaching, your counsel, and your warning. May we not be people who have to learn the hard way. And lastly, Lord, may we be people who rejoice daily. May we be people who delight ourselves in the knowledge that no matter our circumstances, that in Christ our sins have been forgiven. We are reconciled to you that we possess an intimate relationship with You. We are surrounded by Your mercy as one is surrounded by air. We find mercy and favor everywhere, Lord. At home, abroad, by day, by night, in society, in solitude, in sickness, in health. We find it in life. We find it in death. We find it in time. We find it in eternity. May we walk in mercy. May we die in mercy. And may we live in a better world in the midst of eternal mercies. Let us not be silent about our sin. In Jesus' name, amen. As we close our time of worship together, there are some folks that are up here that would love to pray with you if you'd like to come and talk with them a bit and have them pray for you during this time as well. If you wouldn't mind, continuing to lift up the NANC conference and the speakers. Uh, Many of the board members of NANC are here today. Many of those who will be presenting workshops this week are here. And it will be three days of incredible teaching, incredible fellowship, and time together, lifting up God and His Word. And I pray for you as well that you will not keep silent about your sin, that you will run wholeheartedly to your God, knowing full well that in Christ you will receive forgiveness of your sins. Have a blessed day. You are dismissed.